If you would like to buy your own copy of Your Bosses and Algorithm, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Antonio Aloisi is Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellow and Assistant Professor of European and Comparative Labour Law at IEE Law School in Madrid, Spain. And Valerio Di Stefano is Associate Professor with tenure at Osgoode Hall Law School, York University in Toronto, Canada. Together, they are the authors of Your Bosses and Algorithm, which examines the effects that robots, algorithms and online spaces have on the world of work. In part one of this episode, we discuss what algorithms have to do with labour, how COVID has impacted certain platforms and algorithms, how digital spaces and technology can replicate power structures, and much, much more. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm Wei Ming Kam, one of your hosts. And I'm your other host, Rebecca Morofsky. Today, very exciting, we're talking to Antonio Aloisi and Valeria De Stefano about their book, Your Boss is an Algorithm. Artificial intelligence, platform work and labour, obviously incredibly timely at the moment. Amazing to have you both on the show. Welcome. Let's get started with the basics for our audience. What is an algorithm and what does it have to do with labour? Yeah, thank you very much for having us. I will start with a very basic definition. What is an algorithm? An algorithm is a set of rigid or rather adaptable instructions to pursue a goal in a very efficient manner. The main task performed by an algorithm at the workplace is to match, to take decision, to assess and to get rid of workers in some cases. There is another shorthand that must be introduced that is a very widespread catchphrase and is artificial intelligence, a system of software fueled by very powerful computational power that is able to complete activities that humans associate with their own intelligence. For uh, legal experts, we tend to rely on another, on a third definition that is automated decision-making. The possibility of attributing decisional tasks to non-human beings, to software devices and emerging technologies. Why is this so crucial and also dangerous at the workplace level? New technologies, including AI algorithms, are somehow reconfiguring power dynamics at the workplace level. They are expressing and exercising a pressure on information asymmetries and power imbalances. The other important issue that we should be taking into account is that at the workplace level, algorithms are using to automate fully or partially some kind of decisions and activities that have been traditionally taken by managers, supervisors, and other employers. This is somehow critical and even problematic because our legal framework is somehow used to curb, to tame, to rationalize the power of human employers, but the emergence of new technologies is displacing, upsetting, 
protecting the traditional safeguards or uh, countervailing powers that have been statutorily defined or collectively negotiated in order to strike a balance and to reach an equilibrium in order to defend and protect human dignity at the workplace. So you were talking about your legal framework, your legal approach to thinking about AI, and it's such a unique vantage point to this topic that I think affects all of us. But you're both labor lawyers, so I was curious if you could talk a little bit about your motivation for and also your approach to writing this book. Sure. So basically, this comes from realizing a few years back that in the whole debate about the future of work, Regulation was basically sidelined. It wasn't present. Around 2014, 2015, platforms like Uber, Deliveroo, Fudora were already hype. Everybody was talking about it, but nobody was talking about the working conditions and then the legal regulations that apply to these workers. So we basically tell this story in the preamble of our book that the first time we went to the European Parliament to talk about our research, and of course we got lost because the European Parliament is like this monstrous building where basically everything moves around, it's really a maze. And so just by chance, we met this old university colleague of ours and he basically led us to this room and walking, he was asking, what are you doing? We were doing there and we explained, you know, we are here to speak about Uber and Deliveroo and he was flabbergasted. He just answered, what do you have to do with this? I mean, this is about antitrust. This is about transportation. I mean, what does labor law have to do with Uber? And we explained that, for us, that was the most important thing. That, and actually, it was the most important thing. It became the main argument when discussing Uber or all this form of organizing businesses and through platforms. Basically, what are the labor conditions? What are the regulations that apply to these people? Are they employees, workers? Do they have, deserve the application of traditional employment regulation? Do we need new employment regulation? And so this was one a huge drive for us. The other drive was that in the whole debate about automation, again, there were all these numbers about how many jobs will be displaced, how many robots we will have in our workplaces, and we will all be unemployed in the future. And in this whole debate, again, economists launched all these numbers and policymakers were super concerned about it. And there was no discussion about the fact that we have in most of European countries, because there's an EU directive, and also in other countries in the world, there are regulations about collective dismissal. So whenever you want to lay off a certain number of people, you have to do it following procedures that involve unions and public bodies. I mean, that doesn't shield you from mass layoffs. It's not something that can prevent forever layoffs, but it's something that has huge implications on how these decisions are taken. And the absence of that in the debate was striking to us. So this was one of the biggest drives to bring back the law, to bring back regulation in the debate of the future of work. Yeah, it's really, I found that really interesting at the time, back in 2014, because everyone was talking about these new types of platforms. And we can count, for example, again, Airbnb as well as one of them. Technology is amazing, isn't it? Like bringing up all these amazing new ways of like work for these particular industries. And it was very striking to me that everyone kind of took the stance that, you know, technology is always progressive. But something in your book that you say as a 
a sort of very emphatic statement is that technology is never neutral. And then you follow on with that by saying that it can and it must be governed. Um, So I wonder if you could expand on that with regards to how you think digital spaces and technology are involved in sort of actually replicating power structures, because obviously if it's not neutral, then they partake in the power structures that we have in, you know, traditional, what we think of as traditional working spaces, for example. So, I mean, there's this thing that we hear all of the time, like technology is not good or bad. It depends on how you use it, right? This is just a trope. Technology is not just a tool and digitalization is not just the smartphone that you have. Digitalization and technology are embedded in our lives and transform our lives in ways that are impossible to anticipate. Just imagine when we all went on social media like Facebook or Twitter or whatever. I mean, when we went on Facebook, we just wanted to connect with our old classmates or, I mean, just it was easier to organize, I don't know, going to the restaurant using Messenger, right? We would have never imagined that social networks would have such a tremendous impact on our societies and some also very negative impact, aside from the positive that you have said. But extremely negative impacts in terms of the the rule of law, the spread of fake news, the, the polarization of our societies, the idea that basically these algorithms foster polarization and brutal language on these platforms. Nobody would have anticipated that when we got on these social media. So the idea that technology is just something that as long as you are careful and you use it for the good, you are fine. I mean, there's no bad technologies per se. No. Technologies have dramatic implication on societies. And when we talk about the technologies that are introduced at the workplace, some of these technologies are extremely scary, if you think about it. Some We are talking about using hidden the cameras of our laptop in a hidden way to spy on us or to read our emotions during a job interview or to track how many keystrokes we give to the keyboard and basically predict what we want to do, whether we want to get married in the future, whether we want to get to another job, maybe we want to decide to get pregnant. These are things that are not neutral at all. It's not just about the bad uses. It's the idea that you should have as many data as possible, and then you collect this data no matter what, because your first end is to collect the data. And once the data are there, there is no way to ensure that the data are used in an ethical way, in a legal way. Once the data are there, they are just like a gold mine, just the ways to be exploited. And there's no way you can basically close the floodgates, right? So we should think about the uses of technologies and what technologies mean for us and what are the implications of that, of those technologies before putting them into place and taking action on those technologies. Because once the technologies are there, it's extremely difficult to roll them back. Yes, I think it's very clear, especially since the ascent of social media, that digital spaces and algorithms have become completely embedded in our lives. It really feels like almost an extension of our very limbs, these digital spaces. And I think that what you were saying about algorithms fostering polarization and conflict and and that data lending itself to surveillance and almost manifesting into this like digital panopticon, I think all of those things have become so much worse since the pandemic. This looks so different whether you're doing desk work or service work, but 
What do you feel the impact of COVID has been on these online platforms and algorithms? Do you feel that it's accelerated or decelerated certain processes or has it laid bare certain issues that were not being properly addressed beforehand? Sure. Everyone says that the pandemic has profoundly accelerated some underlying trends that were already reshaping the labor market, including when it comes to adopting new technologies that can have an impact on the lives of workers. In our opinion, the pandemic is also a window into some futures of work that uh, have arrived previously then anticipated and are causing anxiety to a certain extent. At the beginning of the health emergency, many commentators rushed to claim that this emergency would have caused an upsurge in automation because robots never call in sick. They don't go on strike. So the feasibility of technology adoption and automation was somehow justified because of the rules on isolation. These are never happened because we have somehow rediscovered the importance of the human network, the uh, groups of workers that allows us to live a sort of quarantine life. This is the first legacy of the pandemic. Instead of aiding jobs automated, we have been witnessing a proliferation of jobs showing very harsh conditions. The second point that we underline in the book is a stark polarization between two categories of workers. Essential workers that had to show up at work regardless of the very challenging circumstances. They had to follow new precautionary measures, but the burden of compliance was shifted on them. And on the other side, remotable task. This is somehow bittersweet in a sense, because remote work or the modality that we've been witnessing, work from home, is a terrific tool when it comes to extending unsupervised autonomy to workers that can better reconcile their private and professional lives. They can self-organize. They can select the priorities or even the methods through which the goals indicated by managers can be attained. But at the same time, we have experienced a widespread reluctance to adopt measures to keep workers safe while ensuring business continuity. There is another important uh, problem that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Several workers, and in particular, no standard workers, there is an entire chapter that is dedicated to this very heterogeneous family of workers have been falling through the cracks of the emergency measures, whether it was uh, some kind of income or mortgage relief, dismissal freezes, or even short-term working schemes. 
At the beginning, there has been a trend towards the adoption of universal measures encompassing also workers, including self-employed workers that have been traditionally excluded from this kind of social security measures. But we have also realized that these solutions, these legal and policy solutions have been treated as one-off policies that have faded with the basically unfolding of the emergency. When it comes to technology, the pandemic has somehow normalized a large adoption of workplace technology for both the categories of workers that we've been mentioning before. Essential workers, frontline workers, or even invisible workers that are working in canteen, in logistic, or in food production, these workplaces have also been the source of several contagions. And on the other side, new rollout of workplace surveillance technology for remote workers. This is a crucial example of how the emergency in this uh, atmosphere of exception to rule can be somehow leveraged to streamline the adoption of technologies that then are here to stay because it is too costly to remove them or because the investment in technology has to be justified with a long-term trajectory. So, there are some lessons that can be learned because of the pandemic, and unfortunately, they are somehow bleak lessons, even if the productivity during these hard times hasn't dropped and the pandemic has not been a landscape for productivity. This means that workers are truly committed. They can also be well-performing regardless of the presence of a manager looking over their shoulders. I know all of you, we've had to like work from home almost completely through the pandemic. And I know it's like certainly like changed <laughs> our view of like what we can and can't do with regards to like technology and how it enables our jobs. I think perhaps this is like slightly different with regards to like your viewpoint as labor lawyers, but how do you think remote work has changed the workers sort of relationship to technology? I know there's as you said, there are like different types of like work within remote work that have been affected by that. But in general, how do you feel like workers have had their relationship change technology because of things like remote work? We could say that the pandemic has served as a mass scale experimentation of remote arrangements or remote work formats. At the same time, this is a terrific opportunity to accustom workers to new technologies, in particular technologies that have been used to basically perform and execute the working duties. There is an important issue to take into account. First of all, many workers were asked to shift to remote working arrangements almost overnight. In Europe, 40% of the working population started working remotely in March 2020. And for one out of four of them, it was the very first time trialing this new format. And we should also be considering that the features, the components of these formats have been 
highly transformed by the emergency situation. The shift was not voluntary and there was no alteration between periods at home and periods in-house at the workplace. Now, we contend that this experiment has somehow normalized the adoption of technology for both essential and remote workers in warehouses or ports. New technologies have been introduced to check whether two workers were within virus-catching distance. In other physical workplaces, there has been a blending of mass detection system, artificial intelligence, and facial recognition tools. In uh, other locations, and even in hospitals, there were new totems, new systems that have been introduced to check whether workers were aptly wearing wearing personal protective equipment. On the other side, when it comes to remote work, this situation is a bit polarized, as we said before, because workers have experienced this enhanced flexibility, but on the other side, this panoptic conversion of technology has been put in place. Managers that were somehow culturally unprepared or unwilling to uh, basically reduce their authority in order to foster this kind of flexibility, have resorted to technology in a dysfunctional way by setting meetings from time to time to check whether workers were not slacking off or even by asking workers to keep track of every single task, to keep the camera open while they were working under the mistaken assumption that workers don't stay motivated on their own. So on the one side, a potential increase in flexibility, self-determination, and even well-being. On the other side, a short-sighted, a backward reaction based on the deployment of technology aimed at constraining flexibility. This is the uh, general perception of technology and remote work, broadly speaking. A kind of missed opportunity, all the more so while we are witnessing in these months, in these days, a very broad resistance, and even local politicians are asking workers to go back to work, and by work they mean the office, as in the last two years we've been on paid holidays during a global emergency. The possibility of using technology to emancipate workers to reduce repetitive tasks is somehow neglected, but there is room for experimentation. And we have been looking at several collective agreements, company policies and practice that are meant to experiment with more flexible models that are based on deliverables, that are based on commitments, on a project-based evaluation rather than on micromanagement and FaceTime as the only yardstick to assess the performance of workers. Yeah, the kind of surveillance that you're speaking to is not only very creepy, but it's um, just deeply condescending. I think this paranoia coming from employers 
assuming that their workers are not actually doing their job is one coming from the fact that they've all bought, you know, rented out these office leases for five years and they just want to fill in their desks so that they get the best bang for their buck. But I think that what's changed since the pandemic you know, on the one hand, I, I, I really can't believe that I got up every single day, got on the subway and got in on time at 9 a.m. But I think something that I miss from that is just the boundary that's created from the office space, this boundary between your workspace and your living space and, you know, even the transition from taking the train home. What's changed for me, I think Ming and I are lucky enough that our company is not surveilling us with, uh, you know, always having our camera on. I have these anecdotes of an entire company's computer working super slowly because everybody has their camera on and they just don't end up getting any work done because of these almost counterintuitive spying measures. But at the same time, I think what's the shift in work for me that I've experienced most is just this idea that if you have Wi-Fi, you are available, this accessibility. So I think there's these spying measures happening, but I think we've all become almost even more aggressively online. And you started speaking to how we can experiment outside of this paradigm, outside of these measures that actually run counter to productivity. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how we can address the power of this AI-enabled monitoring and, yeah, what is a counter solution to this kind of surveillance and, and how does it look different based on your, your class status or the kind of work that you're doing? So the class status, if you want, has an impact that also depends on the kind of job that you're doing. Because, of course, for many of us who work remotely now, basically we're able to switch to work remotely. But as Antonio was saying, there were uh, legions of workers that had to show up at work, essential workers that could not work from remote. And that has an, a huge class implication because during the pandemic, particularly in the peak of the pandemic, it was extremely stressful for these essential workers to move around the town, sometimes without the proper protection. In particular, many platforms were slow in some countries to give protections to workers that were constantly in contact with people. If you think of riders, people that draw food at your home while you were working from remote, and they had to buy their gloves, they had to buy their masks. That had a huge implication that was also, if you want, a class implication. I think that there is a class implication in also this surveillance mood that basically is embedded in uh, the DNA of the contract of employment or anyway in any work arrangement that we do. That basically there's a boss that needs to know what you're doing, needs to know where you are, and needs to direct you to your next task. Now, of course, there are some arguments for managerial authority in the sense that a business uh, needs somebody that coordinates other people. And nobody's contest that in any large organization, any complex organization needs some work of coordination. I think in the book, we made the argument that anyway, this kind of surveillance and monitoring goes much beyond the needs for coordination. The idea that you should know whether I am taking a break to go to the bathroom is preposterous. And many of the technologies that are introduced nowadays monitor also that. Monitor how many times you get up from your chair monitor how many times your, I don't know, your icon becomes uh, yellow from green. What does it mean? Where is the person and whatever. And if at all, these things are an to productivity 
because people start to lose time to gain all of these measures and try to basically trick the system to get around it, which is a huge waste of time. And it's a huge waste of time and resources that is completely useless because we know that productivity is not enhanced by these forms of surveillance. And basically only stress and frustration is announced by these forms of surveillance. Now, the point is, the idea of surveillance and monitoring, as I said, starts at the beginning of industrialization. Factories were born as places in which you would concentrate people to look at what they were doing. I mean, factories predate mechanization. Sometimes people think it it was the other way around. The people were concentrated in factories because machines were there. It was the other way around. People were forced into factories from more loosely coordinated forms of production, precisely with the idea that you should surveil and control them because, oh my God, what they're doing. And I mean, they should not sit idle them. Basically, if we don't look at any moment of what these people are doing, maybe they're going to start riots or or they're going to get drunk or whatever. The contract of employment, and this is something that, again, we make the argument in the book, and it's not something that you hear so publicly. The contract of employment has this path dependency that basically makes your boss your guardian, basically some diaphragm between you and society, because you alone can be trust. And so if you have a boss that checks what you do and where you are, that's better for everyone. This is an old, ancient way of looking at what, how people work that is embedded in, again, in the master and servant laws of the 19th century in, in the Anglo-Saxon world, in, in other forms of laws that aimed at doing exactly the same thing in the civil law tradition. Technology makes this much worse because all of this technology enhances all these powers. This is why, at the moment, we need to raise the bar and say, you know what, we are not in the 19th century anymore. We are in democratic society that should be basically based on the rule of law. Why does my bosses need to know when I go to the bathroom? And how can I be defended from that demand that they want to know where I am every second of my life? Even when when I'm working for them, if I'm working and if I'm creating what I should create or do what I'm supposed to do, Why is somebody allowed to tell me, no, you should do this in these 10 minutes instead of the next 10 minutes? 